Well, it comes back, I suppose, to that whole, you know, this uh, this theory about your, your sphere of your sphere of influence and your and your, your sphere of non-influence. So basically, I think we all just need to do what we can. We need to sort of tread as lightly as we can as individuals in terms of your sphere of influence. Just let the powers that be know that it's a big deal to you. And beyond that, there's there's not a great deal that an individual can do. But if you focus on the change you can make and the influence you can have, then together we can all make a difference. That is Micah, and this is my Find Your Feet podcast. I bring it to you to help share the stories of inspiring individuals and to help us all to learn, lean in, step up, sometimes lean out, and ultimately to help us to find our feet, to be the change that we wish to see in the world. And today's conversation is carrying on on the topic of climate change, one which is close to my heart and as I hope you see, you have seen, is an important conversation to be having. So I bring to you my conversation with Micah, who in his words is a non-specialised specialist contributing to providing context advice and scientific grounding for the management of our parks and reserves and more, more recently the World Heritage Area of Tasmania. His main interest is in Tasmanian biogeography and ecology, and really looking at that in a holistic sense. And he strives to work and to understand how our natural values might respond and adapt to climate change. A Tassie boy at heart, he grew up in the great western tiers of Tasmania, up in the northern area of Tasmania, and in his words was a victim to back to the land parents who migrated to Tasmania from Victoria. He's always loved the Tasmanian wilderness and the flora, fauna and all the curiosity that goes on with the natural values that we have here on our island and he has pursued this unapologetically as his career. I hope that you find this conversation as interesting as I do but before we lean into it I'd like to bring to you um, a few things. First of all I just want to bring your attention to the Find Your Feet tours. These are my trail running tours where we go not just to explore the far reaching corners of the world, but also to explore ourselves and the journey that we are each and individually on. Next year or this year and next year, the tours are all but filled out. However, there are just a couple of places left on one or two of the tours. So I think that there are still a few spots left on our Find Your Feet tour to Chamonix and there's also one place remaining on our Find Your Feet tour to the French Pyrenees and that one is especially close to my heart and I think that you will love it. As you think about the journey that you're on, perhaps you need a little helping hand. So you might like to check out the plethora of resources available on my websites. From my trail running guidebook to trail running training plans and a marathon training plan there too to my blog where I write very openly and candidly on numerous topics, to past episodes of this Find Your Feet podcast. I think that you'll find there's a lot there for you to explore. And also while you're there, don't forget to sign up to my newsletter. You can do that through the contact page. 
Also, just my final mention is a big thank you to the team at Find Your Feet. They run our store based here in Hobart, Tasmania, as well as our large online store. It will have everything that you need for all your wild adventures, from trail running, to hiking, to camping, to travel. We try to source products that are built to last and made as ethically as possible. So all my podcast listeners can access a 20% discount off their first order with us by typing in the word podcast all in capital letters at checkout so jump across to www.findyourfeet.com.au for access to all of those resources and to utilize that discount podcast all right it's time to tap into the knowledge and inspiration of micah so shall we get started i'm ready let's do it wanting to start this conversation obviously we've been like trying to have it for a little while but it's been in the back of my mind for a long time since hearing you present at the national parks meeting that we had in Hobart where you were presenting on climate change and I guess the impacts that we're starting to see particularly in the TWA so the the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area so yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um and I think that what really hit me the most in that conversation was just evidence of like how far along the climate change spectrum we actually are and you know is that what you would agree like that we hear a lot about climate change in the media but we're not i mean you're probably aware of it but we're as a general public not that aware of like actually what impacts we're beginning to see now in tasmania uh yeah that's right um I suppose most people probably think of climate change as something in the future and something uh, they don't really have to deal with. Um, but my sort of area that I, I work in is looking at um, the ways climate change are impacting on natural values um, around Tasmania, particularly in the World Heritage Area, but the reserve estate managed by Parks and Wildlife as well and kind of struggling with how we're going to try to manage those areas in the future to sort of minimise loss of values and, and sort of get the best outcomes we possibly can. Um, and yeah, I mean, when when you look at the data, climate is already changing in Tasmania. Um, the Climate Futures for Tasmania project, uh, which was run by uh, through the CSIRO, um, a few years ago looked at sort of climate change modelling but they also looked at what's been going on in Tasmania from the long-term climate records um, and it's pretty clear that uh, at, as a general rule across Tasmania the the average temperature has already gone up by about half a degree since about 1950 wow. um, and other, there's other things as well like uh, globally sea level has risen by an average of 1.7 millimetres a year throughout the 20th century. That's just based on sort of tide gauges and marks on piers, like there's one down at, um, at um, on the Tasman Peninsula. Um, but also, they did some. They looked at some um, some radar data from 93 to 2006, and from that period um, sea level rose at an average of 3.3 millimetres a year so there's evidence to, to say that that's sort of increasing now. Wow and so that's like averages across the globe 1.7 I think was the figure. Yeah that's the sea level 1. stuff. Yeah. yeah yeah but but is it like 
are we seeing higher level rise in Tasmania or is it, you know, it, so the, the sea level rise is different in different parts of the world depending on where you are? Uh, we don't, um, well, there probably is some specific data for Tasmania, but uh, I'm not aware of it. That's just an average, an average mm -hmm. figure globally that um, they've come up with. Um, but when you look at the modelling, the modelling of, of sea level, and in particular, the things that do damage are things like storm surges, like when you have a, a, a massive storm and um, coinciding with a high tide and you get mm. these these big storm surges. So based on the climate futures for Tasmania data, what was considered to be sort of a one in a hundred year event in the 1990s, uh, by 2100, uh, that same level of storm surge is gonna be happening sort of anywhere between once every five years to several times per year. Mm. Um, so I guess like before we go like really into the deep end, I guess all of this begins to really like point you in the direction of like this is your this is your current role this is your future as it stands is exploring the impact of climate change in Tasmania would that be correct or do, have you sort of <laughs> fallen in it or is this something you've wanted to pursue for a while uh no I can't I kind of fell into <laughs> I kind of fell into the the climate change um projects uh, my background's more in sort of um general ecology I did a lot of work um, as a field botanist at various times, um, but I kind of regard myself as a bit more of a sort of naturalist, really. Mm -hmm. I, I work as a science professional, but I'm more of a generalist. I just like <laughs> trying to get my head around natural systems and going out in the bush and working, you know, thinking about what's going on in a holistic sort of a sense. Mm -hmm. So how did you end up then helping in the current project that you're working on, which is looking at climate change and its impacts in the Twa, in the World Heritage Area of Tasmania? Um, so I started working uh, for the Pipwe um, quite a long time ago now. I think it was about 2001 uh, in various roles. Um, and I ended up working um, in the Twa, the World Heritage Area projects. Um, and there was a need at that time, well, there was, about 10 years ago, we started focusing some of, some of our attentions on uh, potential climate change impacts on the natural values. Um, and that um, project kind of was a bit of a fit for me. So I, I started doing a lot of the project work on it um, with my colleague, uh, Jenny Winham, who's retired now, sort of had the lead on it back then um, and uh, then it kind of fell to me and it's becoming more and more of an issue um, recognised uh, within the Australian World Heritage Areas. Mm. Uh, it's a bit of a focus at the moment uh, looking at climate change. So as that sort of global focus is coming more into, into climate change, it's sort of, it's grown as a part of my job as mm. well. And so when do you like recall when you first became aware of climate change and really thinking about it having a direct effect on us and our like home state of Tasmania? Um, no, I don't really recall when it first happened. My mother's very politically aware and outspoken, so it was always pretty. Um, she always drilled into me all of the all of that sort of stuff. Mm. throughout my life so I was always quite aware it was happening I suppose um, but yeah it's probably been only only in the last sort of 10 years whilst I've been working on it more 
more actively that I've started sort of realising just uh, what a significant impact it is likely to have um, and is probably already having. Um, it's very hard to quantify climate change, which is one of the problems mm. with it, um, which is based, it's based around the whole concept of what climate is um, to start with. So climate is actually a term that, that uh, refers to the sort of averages and variability of the weather taken over anywhere up to a 30-year cycle. Wow. So it's kind of a bit of an abstract concept. Um, most people think they know what climate means, but when you start thinking about what it actually means, it's, mm. it's quite a scientific sort of a rubbery thing. Um, and then when you start talking about measuring changes in something that's already kind of a, a whole bunch of 30-year floating averages, which take into account all sorts of variation anyway, it takes quite a long time for people with a scientific background to say that they have proven that this is happening because people with a scientific bent tend to um, be really conservative. They think about probabilities. They won't say something's absolute until they're like, 98 percent and they mm. can prove absolute so that and then they always quantify it with saying you know oh but there's you know a very slight possibility that it's just random or whatever yeah um but do you think we've moved beyond that spectrum now where people think that it is random like do you feel like collectively your voices are being heard now that you've got this data to sort of begin to back you Oh yeah, well yeah, no, there's there's absolutely no question that climate change is real and happening. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, there's still that, everyone likes to quantify it with, you know, yeah. um, that kind yeah. of statistical, yeah. statistical tests and things. Yeah. So if there's not absolute certainty, a scientist is always going to say there's not absolute certainty, which I think other people take to mean that they're not sure. Mm -hmm. But what they mean is they're certain but they're covering themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so if I can just like before, again, go for another glass yeah. of water, but before we, we again delve too deep into the actual science, and I really do want to get there because I think there's so much value in that, um, I would love to just know a little bit more about the way you were brought up. You sent through a beautiful email to me before the <laughs> conversation and you said that you were a victim of the back-to-the-land parents and had quite a different childhood. And... I just wondered if you could just talk us through very briefly about um, where you grew up in Northern Tassie and, and what that experience was like and how it's, I guess, really impacted on where you've got to today. Uh, yeah, so I, I was, yeah, I was a victim, victim of back to the land parents um, who sort of moved from the mainland to live in Tasmania in the bush in the sort of mid-1970s. Um, so I kind of grew up in a house in the bush without electricity um, mm -hmm. we had goats and all those types of things that people had back then um, so my experience of childhood was like the bush was my was my playground I grew up in the Western Tears um, I spent a lot of a lot of my time sort of wandering around and um, I got you know sort of very comfortable in the bush I still am that's a big part of my life so um, and then I kind of um, I got very involved with um, a field naturalist group up there. They took me out and taught me a lot about plants and animals and looking under rocks and seeing what we could find. 
Um, I was always pretty interested in that sort of stuff and they really nurtured that. So I also worked at a wildlife park up there on the weekends. I did a lot of work with native wildlife. So I've, I've always been very immersed in sort of Tasmanian natural sort of um, natural things and that's, that's kind of my life um, now as well. So mm. it's really good. I feel kind of blessed for having that experience and having the job that I have now. Yeah, I was going to ask, did you ever have any other thoughts about where you wanted to go with your career or did you just feel like you found your calling like quite early on from that upbringing? Um, I, don't, I don't feel like I ever had any real thoughts. It's just kind of naturally evolved my life and mm. I've just ended up here with, with um, very little sort of um, thought on, on how I'm going to um, steer, steer that. Mm. And yeah, I think it's worked out pretty well, really, <laughs> it sounds in retrospect. Like it. <laughs> yeah, and so you obviously you went to UTAS, um, so the University of Tasmania, and studied science, but you majored in plant science geology. Uh, no, no. I, I, geography. Geography. Um, geography and plant science right. are what I majored in, but I sort of um, did a lot of geology as well, um, which I'm quite interested in. So you might, my interest in nature which has carried all the way through from my childhood is very sort of holistic. I like yeah. all the aspects of it. So uh, whilst I work as what they might call a specialist, um, I'm not really a specialist. I'm really a, very much a generalist. Yeah, but it, it, we have, we were blessed to be able to go to Flinders Island together on a field trip for yep. um, our work with parks. And I... Um, it, it became very apparent when we were there that you did love everything. Like you had a knowledge of the geography, you had a knowledge of the geology. Um, when there was stuff to be done with the wombats, you were out doing wombat surveying and then, you know, we came across the snail issue and you're off to look at snails and yeah. it seems like you, it's just been something that you've obviously developed this real fascination and curiosity about the natural world around you. Yeah. Yeah, I try. <laughs> I try, I try, yeah, um, I am interested in everything and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's valuable to sort of, you know, try to turn your hand to everything, mm. a bit of a jack of all trades. <clears throat> so I guess like going forward then, um, you were talking about like a definition of what climate is and how it is very, very hard to come up with like a more generalized definition of it. Um, because, yeah, I mean, certainly, like, I thought I understood climate, but as you begin to talk about it, I'm like, no, I can see it is really quite a technical term that a lot of us don't use. So is yeah. it the same with, like, defining climate change? Like, what, how would you define well, climate change? Yeah, I have, I have some issues with the terminology um, because I'm quite into semantics, <laughs> I suppose. But um, so I suppose it all comes down to... What we're talking about is the weather changing, really. Mm. Um, and climate change incorporates that. <clears throat> but when you start looking at it, the weather is, is actually created by, by a, a global system, which they refer to as the climate system. Um, so what happens is you get energy from the sun and it hits the earth and interacts with... Um, with like the atmosphere and the biosphere, which is all the living creatures on Earth, the hydrosphere, which is all of the free water on the surface of the mm. planet, the cryosphere, which is all of the frozen water on the surface of the planet, 
and the lithosphere, which is uh, all the hard bits, uh, the rocks, the mountain ranges, mm. the geography. <clears throat> so the sun hits that. All of the energy from the sun bounces around, has multiple feedbacks. It's incredibly complex and results in a whole bunch of atmospheric phenomena, basically. And some of these we can measure and people do like to measure things. So they, they call those the weather variables. There's you know, sort of eight of them, I suppose. Um, things, you know, temperature, wind, relative humidity, all this sort of stuff. Uh, so people have measured these, these weather variables for, for hundreds of years. Um, and then, because we all have OCD, they, they like <laughs> to um, look at that data and sort of try to make sense out of it. And that's where they get this concept of the climate is they, they measure it and they look at it over a long period of time. And so you have like um, seasonal variations, you know, diurnal variations, night and day. Uh, in spring in Tasmania, you get variations from minute to minute sometimes. Um, and you look at all of that and you create this, yeah, this statistical description of the averages and the variability and the extremes and they, they call that the climate and you can you can do that for any single spot on the on the surface of the planet so everywhere is going to have a slightly different um, climate or microclimate if you want to say that <clears throat> um, and a part of that is looking at the extremes so ex like heat waves or um, huge rainfall events that result in floods, all those sorts of things are all caught up in that same concept of climate. Mm. So when you, start talk when you start talking about climate change, it's not, it's not the actual climate that's changing. The climate change is actually a, um, a symptom of a change in the climate system mm. because, um, and so are a bunch of other things. So, so the climate... <laughs> So you can go into this for a long time. No, it's really no, it's actually really interesting. I'd love to yeah. I'd love to hear where this is going. All right. Yeah. So if you if you start looking at the climate system and, and when humans have started having an impact on that, mm. it's a long time ago. It's when humans started burning stuff basically. Really? Yeah. Um, they started having a having a impact on the biosphere. They started changing vegetation types around the world. Um, Tasmanian Aboriginal burning had a huge impact on the Australian flora, for example. Mm. Um, and then about, you know, sort of 12 and a half thousand years ago, or whenever it was, when there was agricultural revolution, they started clearing things and turning them into, into farmland, basically. Um, and all of that has impacted the climate. Humans have had impact on the climate for a long time. Um, but then in the Industrial Revolution, uh, whenever that started, 1750 or something, when we started burning fossil fuels um, and pumping carbon back into the atmosphere, that's when it all kind of started changing really, really dramatically because mm. we started changing the atmospheric carbon concentration um, in the atmosphere. And so we've changed the climate system, which has changed the climate, but that's also changed other things. So you get sea level rising, you get you get ice melting. They're all interrelated. So when people talk about climate change, they often talk about um, um, sort of impacts of climate change and they'll talk about things like sea level rise being an impact of climate change. 
that's not really an impact they're just different sides of the same coin they're all mm. all connected um, to each other uh, so yeah it's 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 a difficult concept to get your head around I yeah. struggled to do it myself and I've been trying to do it for quite a few years now <laughs> yeah and you talked about in your presentation there was like the um, pulse and pressure kind of situation going on so it wasn't just like just the temperature increase or just the sea level rise but it was the um, and their effects on the natural values but it was like how frequently they're happening and the severity of them happening so I think what I interpreted and you can shoot me down if I'm wrong is that previously like we might have a drought which hit for a period of time but then the natural value <coughs> had the opportunity to try and readapt or re like equilibrate equilibrate that's yeah. what i'm trying to say <laughs> thank you um, but then now we're starting to see the severity and the frequency increasing and so the values yeah. aren't having enough time to kind of yeah that's that's one of the that's one of the theories and quite a good one i think on how climate change actually causes changes in the natural environment um, there was a really good paper um, published um, for uh, recently. Uh, the lead author was Beck Harris, who's at the uni here, um, tying um, this concept of what they call press and pulse as a, as a method through which climate change is going to impact natural values, or in fact is impacting natural values already. So, so this idea is that there's this, as the, the averages of the climate sort of you know it's generally a bit warmer it's generally a bit drier um, they start to put sort of stress on natural values be that a vegetation community that's adapted un adapted to a certain certain scenario it starts to get stressed because there's this constantly changing environment um, but then when there's a um, like an extreme event, be that a heat wave or like an extreme, like a drought uh, or even a bushfire, for example. And that will really knock that value about, um, do a lot of damage to it. And under conditions in the past, that's generally followed by a period where that value, that vegetation community, that species has the ability to recover mm -hmm. um, to the point it was before it got damaged by that extreme event but now because it's already under stress values don't have that ability to recover back to right, the I back see. to their stable yeah. state so when the next extreme event happens they get they get even more damaged or more of more of their extent lost or whatever um, and through that kind of like getting lent on and then getting tapped by extreme events eventually mm. they um, the community changes or the value is lost um, in that area. And so what do you think are the extreme events? And I'm going to focus on Tasmania, even though like a lot of our audience aren't from here, but um, <coughs> I think that Tasmania is, a, is such a, and like we, we all agree, like an incredibly unique and special place from the vegetation, the animals, the climate, everything that we have going on here, and I think it is quite an interesting case to look at. So let's focus there. So what do you think are the extreme events that we're going to be facing or are facing here in Tasmania particularly? Uh, so there's already there's already quite a few um, impacts of particular extreme events um, on natural values that you can observe in Tasmania and, and have been able to 
um, over the last 10 years. Their, their sort of impacts of extreme weather events and, you know, people have been kind of saying, oh, we can't, we can't say for sure that that's climate change, but I think that time's kind of passed. I think these are climate change things. Um, for example, uh, uh, in, on the highlands in Tasmania, on the central plateau, there's a species of eucalypt called Eucalyptus gunnii, um, the cytogum, um, which is this species that's kind of adapted to living in the kind of driest and coldest bits of the highest altitude parts of Tasmania and it's, it can out-compete all the other eucalypts in that environment, so that's where it grew. Um, but over the last 10 years, uh, probably 15 years now, there's just been recurrent droughts and because that particular species was living in an environment that was so close to the edge of its tolerances, uh, a lot of them have died now. So most of uh, one particular subspecies, the Myena cytogum, uh, has lost most of its major populations wow. um, and they won't be coming back. They're all drought killed. Um, but those environments where it has historically had population, big old trees, we're talking hundreds of years old, um, some of them having um, tapping, tapping um, scars from where um, Aboriginal people tap them to make, uh, to get the, the gum, no, they sort of tap them, the, the sap into a little sort of um, hole in, in, the, in the bark and they drink that. Um, so these were quite culturally significant trees, some of them as well. Um, they'll never be able to survive in those places where their strongholds were again. They might be able to survive in another place, but I think the climate's probably changing so fast that they're not going to naturally get to that, that new area where they can survive now. That, I mean, we could potentially do some sort of management actions. Um, there, are, there are people who are sort of um, doing translocations of that species already. Um, so that, that's one example. Um, bushfire is an excellent example in Tasmania. That's sort of our our real massive threat. And I know you've had you've had a chat to Dave Bowman about mm. bushfire. So that's a, that's a huge issue in Tasmania. There's really good evidence, sort of irrefutable irrefutable, irrefutable evidence to, uh, to suggest that things like lightning ignitions from um, Sorry, yeah, light, lightning ignitions of bushfires have massively increased in the last 15 years in Tasmania. Uh, the AFAC report into the 2019 bushfires in Tasmania came out a couple of months ago, or actually less, a couple of weeks ago probably. Um, and just that, like, so in Tassie we had a terrible fire season this year. Um, they've just had an inquiry, they've got all of the data together. Um, so the sort of 14th and 15th of January this year, we had a whole bunch of lightning um, storms go across the state and they recorded, I think, 2,400 um, lightning strikes, surface lightning strikes, which started uh, 70 bushfires all at once. A lot of those in really remote areas, which are just, um, particularly in the World Heritage Area, because the the vegetation so flammable, the, the moorlands and stuff. If you can't get there and put them, put them out before they get beyond sort of a hectare or two in size, they're going to keep burning until it's winter, basically. Um, 
And am I correct in saying that there's a risk that those fires are actually still burning now? Yes, I have. I've heard that um, up until a few weeks ago, they were quite concerned that the bushfires in Tasmania were still going in the soil in a few places. Um, but since we've had quite a bit of rain over the last three weeks, um, everyone seems a, a bit more relaxed about that and we're, we're relatively confident that those, those fires are out now. Mm. Um, but it's, from what I can, what I've heard, it doesn't look good for the summer coming up that we're shaping up for another season that could potentially be quite ferocious for wildfire. Yeah, that's right. The Bureau of Meteorology have released their um, their warnings for the coming season and the east coast of Tasmania is is expected to be a real a real um, bad bad place for bushfires from really early on, I think sort of anywhere from October onwards. Wow. Um, they're they're looking they're well they're preparing for, for things things to go wrong. So that brings me to a question then that I had about the changes that are predicted to be seen in Tasmania. You had some really interesting graphs, which I'd love to be able to pop up if they're, um, if you're okay with me putting them with the show notes. But it looked about, we were looking at the changes that are predicted to be seen on the east coast of Tasmania and the west coast of Tasmania going forward. And you had, um, was it, now you're going to have to correct me, but the A2 models and the B1 models. So maybe mm. we need to explain them first, but then I'd love to delve into like, what are the predicted changes on climate east versus west? Okay, so we're talking about the <clears throat> climate futures for Tasmania data. This was a project that was, that was um, funded by the federal government um, sort of nearly 10 years ago now. Um, so what they did was they took a whole bunch of global climate models and global climate models are big picture things. They they like to model climate change um, to sort of one degree grid, which basically means that Tasmania is one dot. Mm -hmm. um, so they took those global climate change models, a whole bunch of them, um, and they downscaled them for Tasmania to a 10 by 10 kilometre grid, um, which takes an awful lot of smart people and a lot of computing <laughs> power. <laughs> Because there's these are serious sort of physics-based atmospheric models. Um, so that project um, looked at climate predicted climate change for Tasmania um, against a, a whole range of different um, global carbon emission scenarios. These are sort of internationally agreed scenarios. So they looked at the I might get this right around the wrong way, but the A1 and the B2 scenario are the ones that they, they used in the end. I think A1 scenario was is like um, sort of sort of worst case. So um, no, none of the countries in the world sort of cut their carbon emissions uh, as much as they probably should, and carbon global atmospheric carbon keeps going up basically. The B2 is sort of a more sort of optimistic but still kind of realistic model where everyone tries their hardest to cut their, their carbon emissions. Um, so they looked at those, those, those two scenarios um, and I think ba based on, on current um, measurements of, of atmospheric carbon and where people are going with their sort of um, um, Paris Agreement and Kyoto Protocol kind of targets. Uh, it's probably not looking particularly good 
at the moment. Right. I wanted to ask you that. <laughs> like if, if we had like one is everything is absolutely perfect and 10 is like the shit's really hitting the fan yeah, in, the, in regards to those A1, B2 models, where are we? Like rough, do you, what's your guesstimate of where we are sitting? Well, well, as an example, they measure the um, atmospheric carbon in Hawaii, I think, um, every May. They do it in May because that is the time of the year when globally atmospheric carbon is at its peak. That's because that's just before all of the northern hemisphere boreal forests start to grow because that's one of the, the major carbon sinks in the globe. Um, and that this year uh, they hit 414.7 parts per million uh, which is the highest highest uh, for at least a million years um, highest they've ever recorded obviously but also globally for at least a million years and it's also the second highest increase they've ever recorded so it's actually looking like um, rather than carbon emissions beginning to sort of slow they're actually increasing at the Yikes. moment yeah um, and that that may be to do with um, sort of what what's happening uh, with with emissions but it also might be to do with things like feedback mechanisms because there's all these scary feedback mechanisms where at, uh, where carbon's getting released into the atmosphere through climate change doing things like melting permafrost um, in Tasmania uh, recently uh, Tim Wardlaw, who used to work for Forestry Tasmania, is now at the uni. He runs a project um, down at Warra, which is in the southern forest where they have a flux tower. This is There's a global network of these things. It's a big tower in wet forest and it's looking at the sort of respiration and gas exchange at various levels of the forest canopy. And he uh, analysed some data that they took during um, quite a substantial heat wave. Um, which I would say is climate change related heatwave in 2017 maybe it might have been um, but they, they found that that forest which is a, quite a major carbon sink it usually takes up a lot of atmospheric carbon as it's quite actively growing um, during that heatwave it, it stopped it, it shut down and for that month um, can't quite remember the figure. I think it was for that month the um, the forest was taking up 1.5 tonnes less carbon per hectare than it usually would. Wow. So that's a real feedback because across Tasmania this is something like half a million tonnes less carbon taken up because of one wow. heat wave. Wow. And as you're getting more heat waves it's actually sort of you're getting this feedback where you know what I mean. Yes, yeah, so basically it's not as simple as some of us probably previously thought, where the more carbon we put out, you get direct correlation with the increasing carbon we're seeing in the atmosphere because you're getting the system feeding back in on itself That's as right. well. So it's a really complex system and we don't understand it. We weren't really aware of that, for example. That's kind yeah. of a new bit of quite scary information. And I guess things like and seeing the Amazon rainforest burning at the moment where we never probably would have thought of wildfires in the Amazon, like that's part of feeding back into that system. Is that correct? 
Well, that certainly wouldn't be good for atmospheric carbon, but I think people had something to do with that as well, from what I've heard. Right. Okay. <laughs> Probably have But there's quite possibly <laughs> more of these feedbacks going on that we haven't even identified yet. So. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, so on that scale, like just to, to close that conversation element, but like on that scale of one to 10, like where do you think we are at? Like just for, for us as sort of non-specialists in this area to get a tangible feeling of like really the, the severity of the issue that we're talking about. Well, on those carbon emission scenarios, such as the, the A1 and the B2 scenario, we're doing pretty poorly at right. the moment. Okay. All right. <laughs> I get it. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, I want to then understand what you believe the, the changes that we're going to see on the East Coast versus the West Coast. Because what surprised me when I looked at the, the mapping that mm. you, um, you presented in that, in that Parks Council meeting that we had when I really sort of connected with the topic that we were talking about right now is that the changes on the west coast, which is our wilderness world heritage, are pr predominantly wetter areas are looking mm. to become a lot drier. Am I correct in saying that? Well, it's quite, it's quite, it's really interesting, Tasmania, their, their climate change predictions for sort of 2050, uh, which isn't very far away now, and 2100 no. are really variable across the state. And this okay. is to do a lot with Tasmania's got this amazing topography and we have also got an oceanic climate a lot of the weather comes from the west uh, and it's really variable the weather you get in tassie as most people <laughs> who live in tassie will know yep <laughs> um you know what? sort of so south arm gets a whole bunch less rain than hobart that gets a whole bunch less rain than the top of the mountain for example um so look looking at tasmania as a whole things like rainfall when you look at Tassie as a whole, it's not really going to change much at all, I don't think. But when you start looking uh, at Tasmania um, closer, things like uh, the northeast coast and Flinders Island will probably get a, a bit wetter. Um, this, in fact, most of Tasmania will end up getting a little bit wetter. Oh, really? Except for the central plateau, northwest and King Island, uh, which are predicted to get drier. And the central plateau is actually sort of worst case scenario it's going to get quite a bit drier they suspect um, but it's more it's it's more worrying when you start looking at how that rainfall's expected to come um, so the west coast for example southwest coast world heritage area is expected to get drier in summer and wetter in winter which is mm. not good for sort of and mm -mm. and they have also looked at things like um um forest fire index and things like that and there's going to it's going to be sort of more likelihood of bad bushfire weather across Tasmania as a whole but the southwest isn't looking particularly well um, and temperatures are also pretty 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 variable once again the central plateau is going to get going to cop at the worst it's going to get uh, sort of I think for Tasmania in over the whole of Tasmania they're looking at about a 2.9 percent 2.9 degree increase in average temperature um, by 2100 but that's sort of up, up above three and a half percent I think on the central plateau and sort of wow. quite a bit lower in the northeast um, things like that and so am I correct in reading between the lines too that 
you're, you're talking about averages, but it's likely to say that rainfall could just come in one big, big dump, like more like a storm. Yeah. Event, and then be super dry in between. That's right. They're, they're, they're really strongly predicting that our, the weather's going to be a lot... Um, oh, I don't know, that's not the right term. Less stable. It's going to be like... Um, overall, we might get more rain, but there'll also be more droughts and more floods. It's, it's um, so, so they're predicting that sort of large rainfall events will become the norm. We won't be getting these days where you get five mil nearly so much or even less than one mil. You'll be getting these days where you get 30 mil or 100 mil and then you'll have a long drought periods as well. It's, mm. um, and the same with heat waves. They're expecting uh, quite an increase in, in heat waves in certain areas. Um, and a decrease in cold waves in Tasmania. Mm -hmm. Cold waves are quite important for uh, sort of uh, maintaining tree lines and things like that in, al in alpine areas. Mm. And that was that's sort of <coughs> leading me into my next question. And I, I think we all have like a different reason for why we love Tasmania, what we think is so special and unique about it. But I'm wondering from like a natural values perspective and your knowledge, like what do you think makes Tasmania so unique and so special for you? Because I think it's going to flow into a conversation about what are the changes that we're going to start to see more specifically when it comes to our natural values. Yeah, so I think what makes Tasmania so special is that it's so variable. There's so much different, so many different environments in Tasmania in such a small area, um, due to our sort of um, sort of amazingly variable geography and geology as well, and that oceanic climate where you get that real climatic variation across the state. Mm. You go to a similar area of central Queensland and it will be a lot less interesting than Tasmania, <laughs> I think. Not that we're biased. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and so when, but when it comes to, say, for instance, the Wilderness World Heritage Area, it also seems like the vastness of what is left as what we would, well, most people would think of as wild, and I know that term has also got yep. um, a bit of, like, a bit of a, a discussion around what wild actually is, but... It's, it's so vast when you stand on a mountaintop and you look down like you just don't you don't see roads and you don't see any infrastructure yeah so what what i've been doing quite a bit of work on lately is um climate change adaptation um and there's climate change science is really wordy adapt adaptation um for uh, in the in this sense is is used very specifically you're looking at how values be they natural values or cultural values or anything um adapt and survive climate change be, be that they changing changing to their function or changing to something new or um and caught up in that term is is sort of things that are vulnerable to being damaged and lost or things that are resilient and are likely to be able to sort of adapt themselves um and maybe change in their extent or in their composition um, but sort of still still sort of hang on um, and and when you look at somewhere like the world heritage area which is it's huge it's you know god i should know this term it's like one 1.4 million hectares i think or mm. something like that um, 
and it's there's mountains there's plains there's rivers it's a really complex landscape we have this oceanic climate so because we have the southern ocean surrounding us that kind of um, ameliorates some of some of the impacts you'd get in places like continental parts of the world like Europe and North America so because the, the the water is always it's this massive heat flux you know heat sink I should mm. say so it kind of keeps us pretty stable compared to the rest of the world mm. um, and because the Twi is so big so natural so diverse and we have the, it's this ocean around us in terms of adaptation for natural values it's kind of nearly as good as it gets we're really lucky in in a lot of ways I mean if you were looking at sort of natural areas in somewhere far more vulnerable to sort of changes I don't know you look at somewhere like Namibia for example mm. which is it's, it's basically a desert country most of the things that live there are living right at the edge of their environmental tolerances and you know I think I was reading recently they're head, head, heading into their fourth or fifth or sixth year of like severe drought and they're expecting this year to be particularly bad wow um and it's just going to get to the point where everything's going to change um pretty badly but the toires you know as far as it goes we're really lucky mm. i think but also within within the toire a lot of it's pretty resilient and, and if we manage that landscape um with climate change in mind and sort of make sure that there's the opportunity for things to sort of naturally migrate or you know um, we don't put any excess pressures on them uh, we make sure that biosecurity is maintained we don't get weeds and pests and diseases getting spread around that could do more damage and put more stress on those systems a lot of it should be really resilient but on the other hand one of the reasons that Tasmania and the World Heritage Area is so significant and one of the main one of the significant natural reasons the World Heritage Area is listed um, as World Heritage is because of our paleoendemic flora the elements um, that are sort of Gondwanan in origin you're looking at pencil pines and king billy pines and a whole range of other of other things that are sort of uh, relictual from from when the earth was a very different place the, the climate was colder and wetter um, so these species are still survive in Tasmania because they're already climate change refugees the global climate has changed and they've they've uh, sort of uh, shrunk back to sort of you know you get them in Tasmania New Zealand some places in South America a lot of these plant species I'm mainly talking about but you have animals as well so these are things that are really, they might be pretty tough to the climate um, if, once they get established, but, but things like fire, they can't deal with at all. Yeah, they don't regenerate um, at all. They don't regenerate at all. They're, they're killed by fire. And when you start looking at things like pencil pines, there's, there's reasonable evidence to suggest that pencil pines um, probably haven't been sort of... Um, reproducing through seed very much at all in recent decades or um, even centuries in fact getting getting a new cohort of uh, of pencil pine seedlings established it may well take sort of 
10 years of wet weather for them to get to a point where they can survive a drought. Mm. And they haven't had that um, for a long time and they're probably not likely to have those same conditions. So those species at the moment are sort of, they can hold on for quite a long time. These, these are things that can live for thousands of years. Um, but if they get burnt, they're not going to come back mm. really. So um, protecting those sorts of values, those sorts of vulnerable values is, is really high um, priority in Tasmania. And that brings me, you mentioned Dave Bowman and the, the podcast that I had with him about fire. Um, and it was, it was a fascinating podcast, but in it, he mentioned that, and he sort of, I think he sort of said it as a bit of an off the cuff, not a joke, but kind of like, Oh, I hope it doesn't come to this, but this concept of relocating some of those ancient Gondwanan species like the pencil pine to places like Macquarie Island and even further south into Antarctica. And mm. he called it returning to the mothership was his like <laughs> terminology that, yeah. that he used. But like, is this, is it, are like those kinds of measures being discussed now? Um, they're not, they're not being discussed very openly at the moment, but I suspect it may well come to that sort of a scenario um, potentially um, quicker than, than people think, I think, for a lot of stuff. Um, it's been, it's actually been identified as a threat to the World Heritage Area, um, that kind of um, translocation of species um, from outside of Tasmania, you know, because we could, be quite realistically seen as, as a potential a potential spot for sort of uh, Victorian species to be moved into um, as, as well. Um, I don't know if threat is the right term, but yeah, I think I think it probably may come to that sort of a thing at some point. Mm. Uh, we're not at it yet, um, but I think I think um, impacts of climate change could become pretty evident pretty quickly. I mean, we've been lucky in Tasmania with bushfires. We've had landscape scale bushfires in 2014, 2016, 2019. Mm. Um, and prior to that, they were incredibly rare and now we're getting them all the time and we're expecting to get them all the time from now on. Mm -hmm. And the only um, 2016, we burnt a bit of um, pencil pine up at Lake Mackenzie. Uh, the 2019 fires, we were lucky in that we lost very little. I mean, there was a bit of damage here and there. Um, but at some point, we may well get, uh, you know, a whole bunch of remote area um, fires start up in, in the middle of the walls of Jerusalem or something like that, which is a, a real um, sort of the arc for sort of Gondwanan, Gondwanan mm. species. And if that happened, it would be... It would be devastating. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that place is so close to so many Tasmanians' hearts, if not Australians' hearts, as is like Cradle Mountain, where you also see some pretty yeah. amazing um, vegetation still remaining and clinging to the edges yeah. of it. So what are some of the other um, studies that you've been doing in the World Heritage Area? One that 
I'm without planting seeds, no pun intended, in your mind as you think about this question, but one of the ones that really stuck with me was the changes that you're starting to see in coastal erosion down in some of, some of the southwest areas. But what are some of the other significant impacts that we're beginning to see in climate change in the Tuah? Um, so we, we have a whole range of, of monitoring sites. Um, that we have set up in uh, areas that have been identified as being potentially vulnerable to climate change. These are mainly sort of um, alpine areas. These are sort of islands in the sky, really, because uh, in Tasmania, we don't have much alpine, you know. If the alpine area starts at 1,000 metres and the mountain is only 1,100 metres high, doesn't take much change in sort of um, conditions for it all to be pushed off the top. Mm. Um, so we, we do have monitoring and it's pretty early days for us. We, we have detected little bits of change. We have coastal monitoring in the southwest. Um, one of our return sites um, down at New Harbour, I think it was, showed sort of um, there'd been sort of, uh, I think it was 11, 11 metre recession of the vegetation front um, on, on the beaches down there. Um, but this is, I mean, they're really uh, sort of those oceanic beaches are really sort of um, changeable habitats anyway. So you would kind of expect them to be quite resilient. The plants, they're, they're used to being sort of pushed back and then and re-encroaching forward. Mm -hmm. um, so providing, providing um, they don't get pinched out against some rocky ground behind, if, if they're going back into a dune system, you'd expect the vegetation to do okay. Um, but yeah, those storm surges we've been getting around the sort of south and west coast in recent years have knocked back the coastal verge um, in quite a few places. But it's also accreted in other places. It's it's quite complex and... Right. Yeah. It just, 11 metres just sounded like a lot to me. I mean, we talk about, like, you know, areas, you know, where there's beach houses right on the waterfront and oh, yes. the rest of them. But, you know, you think 11 metres of, like, this natural vegetation's home, like, yep. being lost. It, it just sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, and in, and in that particular case, uh, we lost a... So, um, there's a sand binding community made up of, of native grasses and herbs, and then it backs onto sort of a coastal um, scrub community and then it goes back into sort of the corporate coastal rainforest uh, and there, there we lost all of the sand binding community and it's kind of eroding into the into the front of the coastal scrub wow and then that's kind of getting killed by a sort of wind but you know if if it goes another 10 years without there being a, a big storm surge um, that 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 um, sandbinding community will probably re reinvade. It's that it should be pretty pretty resilient, I, I think. Um, the main reason we're monitoring that those kind of condition areas is because there's a number of threatened plant species associated um, with coastal sandbinding communities in the southwest, and we just we want to make sure that we're not losing them. We mm -hmm. want to make sure that they're actually holding on and they're, they're managing to. Um, to adapt themselves right and so do you feel that knowing what you know from the work that you've done and your peers work that they've done that there's a sense of urgency in Tasmania to 
I don't know what I don't know what to say what the, what's the right word because you can't like necessarily fix the problem but to really respond to climate change as a priority. Um, what, at what level? Um, exactly. I mean, I think it's probably a really broad question because you know I, I just for instance had my brother on the podcast and he was talking about how we have like the individual level then we have the community level we have the business level and then we have the like the political level and I think that there are a lot of people at different levels rallying together and particularly down at the individual level there are people who are beginning to think about like what you eat and how you recycle and what yeah. you buy and but um but on the whole like I guess do you feel that that sense of there is a sense of urgency and it's been heard through the levels uh, well I think it's been heard I think um, there's there's more that that could be done at the moment. <laughs> um, certainly, um, in the World Heritage area, we're we're really starting to to ramp up how how closely we, we look at this stuff because it's it's been you know particularly around fire and biosecurity, which are two of the major sort of risks that need to be managed. Um, if if the damage from climate change is to be sort of kept to a minimum. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how to answer that. That's. Do you believe that there's any chance that we can reverse climate change? Like if if everyone stepped up a huge we, step, we can minimise it. I right. think I think we still have a chance to minimise it. Um, but we're already locked into a cycle where there's going to be some quite significant changes okay. by the end of this century. If 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 sort of um, the Paris Agreement um, is you know every, everyone sticks to that and sort of global global carbon emissions are sort of um, a cut and and there's no significant environmental feedbacks of carbon that we haven't taken into account then maybe in a few hundred years it'll it'll be it'll be evened out or even getting better but um yeah i don't think we're going to avoid we're not yet a, a lot of right. environmental um not to mention sort of social and economic upheaval so how do you how can we as individuals, I want to start at the individual level and then maybe we can just briefly touch on the higher levels, but how is we, how can we as individuals take what we're hearing from you, do you think? Like, and even just put it back into the way you think about your approach to living on the planet and, and the people around you living on the planet. Can we, like, I guess, make a difference? Because it does feel like where we see it, like we hear about climate change, you're finding evidence of climate change even in our home state. You're saying like, it is gonna be happening, we need to adapt, we need to kind of address the situation, but like what can we as individuals be doing about it? Well, it comes back, I suppose, to that whole, you know, this uh, this theory about your, your sphere of, your sphere of influence and your, and your, your sphere of non-influence. So basically, I think we all just need to do what we can. We need to sort of tread as lightly as we can as individuals um, in terms of, in terms of um, oh, 
climate change mitigation, that's basically a term that means cutting carbon emissions. Um, but also in terms of your sphere of influence, just, you know, let the powers that be know that it's a big deal to you. And beyond that, there's, there's not a great deal that an individual can do. But if you focus on the change you can make and the influence you can have, then together we can all make a difference. Mm. And that's what Dan Brown said to me when we were up in the... We'd gone up to look at the area affected by the 2016 wildfires up at Lake Mackenzie in yep. the Alpine area. And we were walking along and, like, for me it was so confronting, you know, to mm. see it real first at hand. And yeah, I'm it's sure really you, depressing, it's isn't really it? It's really depressing to see, especially the burnt pencil pines in the area. And I was walking along feeling really demoralised and he came up and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said... Han, at some point you have to believe that there's all these great people such as yourself out there doing great things and eventually we'll all come together and I think that that's been for me my guiding light is yeah. that we keep doing what we do and having this podcast actually came about from that experience thinking that I have an opportunity to share people's voices such mm. as yours and that's one thing I can do as well as my recycling as well as as yeah. well as well as but um yeah, so have you personally made changes to the way you live your life over the last couple of years now, knowing what you know? Um, I've all, well, from my background, my, my mother, <laughs> I've, kind of, I've kind of always lived that life <laughs> yeah. to some extent. Um, but yes, me, me, me and my partner, we, we do um, try to um, we reduce and reuse um, and recycle as much as we can um, yeah and it's it's I mean I've got small children so it's a bit you know you really want to try to do the best by them mm. um, and you know I worry a little bit about the world they might end up living in but you know it we just got to do what we can do mm. 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 And it's interesting that you say that and I can see there's emotion in that because that was exactly what is my brother's motivational mm. force as well as we talked about the work he does which is bringing sustainable technology into businesses organizations and even for the individual is like with young children he's like i'm just trying to make or do the best that i can and, I, and again it keeps coming back to like you like you said finding that sphere of influence isn't it yeah yeah and so what would be your overall outcome that you would love to see with the work specifically the work that you've been doing in Tasmania and understanding climate effects on natural values um what would I like to see specifically like wave a magic wand <laughs> wave, wave a magic wand um well I suppose I work in the area of um reserve management um and I am not a land manager, the Parks and Wildlife are the land manager, but I um, contribute advice to them which they take into account when they're managing their reserves. Um, and I'd like, I suppose I'd like for um, sort of our sort of climate change adaptation planning process, I'd like for it to, you know, gain legs and uh, and be sort of integrated into how the reserves are managed and be sort of front front and centre. Um, not 
just be integrated into everything that they do, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily managed specifically for climate change, um, but have that taken into account in a sort of really sort of realistic and informed way when decisions are made, mm. I suppose. So it's almost like a given that that has to happen and then all the other decisions happen on top of that in some ways. In some ways, yeah. I mean, they've got a lot of they've got a lot of variables that they have to take into account when they when they're making sort of management decisions. But yeah, I mm. think I think climate change is quite a significant one. Uh, it's already taken into account, um, but we need to sort of develop a really sort of coherent plan um, and approach to how we are going to manage that risk, mm. um, which is kind of what I'm attempting to. Um, do at the moment at work is, is create a strategy for how that is approached. And what do you think would be some of the competing threats to that? Threats to... Yeah, stealing their attention to other areas, like it getting overlooked as a key priority, like it might still happen a little bit, but like I think what you're trying to say is like I want to see them continue to step up and continue to see this as a priority focus and a given in any of the planning that happens around reserve management yeah but what would be a threat to to them i guess stepping up and really making it that priority um i don't know there's sort of i mean there's all sorts of political sort of um pressures on, on 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 land managers and i can imagine in the future um Climate change could be having, you know, quite significant impacts outside of the reserve area, um, and that there could be. I mean, I know in places like uh, in Queensland and, and New South Wales, for example, um, where there's terrible droughts and livestock are dying and, and things like that. There's pressure to sort of open up their reserves for for grazing to and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're horrible decisions to have to be mm. made. Mm. Um, so I mean, there's 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 risks of things like that. And I think once it sort of gets to that point, it's sort of um, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to make those decisions, and there'll be all sorts of political pressures from from various places. And, and you know, I don't know. I'm glad I'm not having to make those decisions. Yeah. I can tell you that though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm just. Providing uh, providing the best advice I can, really, mm. and um, and hoping that uh, that it that it goes in the right way. And I sort of asked it before, but I feel like I want to ask it more pointedly. On that note, again, do you feel like you're being heard? Like, do you feel like the work you're being you're doing, and your you specifically, your voice is being heard now? Um. Yes, I think I think it is. I think um, I, f- I feel like like it is being heard um, nationally. Uh, world heritage areas, the Australian world heritage areas, have uh, identified climate change as basically the greatest threat. I think um, to world heritage integrity, um, and it's it's yeah, it's got quite a bit of momentum at that sort of. Um, space mm. so okay, uh, and, that, and that feeds back that feeds back into the sort of the, 
World, the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area, Macquarie Island World Heritage Area, where I also work sometimes. Um, do you, f in that, then, do you think that there are any really great case studies out there of where like reserves are doing it really well? The other maybe other World Heritage areas where we're really starting to see like climate change just embedded in all of their management. Um, no. <laughs> I don't think there are. Wow. I think it's kind of we're a little bit um, we're a little bit at the coal face, I suppose. I mean, sure, there are there, like um, that's not completely true. It has been thought about uh, in quite a few places. Uh, I know Kakadu had a climate change management plan um, and things like that. A, a lot of these documents to date have more been about. Um, identifying risks and threats and issues. Um, now I think we're kind of getting to the point where a lot of management of reserve areas are starting to look at what are we actually going to do, what's our strategy for managing these areas under climate change um, to, to realise sort of a best outcome in the future. Mm. And we're kind of all kind of at that point now. Um, or well, not all of us, but yeah, we're kind of at that point now. Mm -hmm. So there's actually like a huge opportunity for Tasmania to kind of lead the way a little in this sphere. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know if we're leading the way, but we're, we're not behind the eight ball, put it that way. We're doing, mm -hmm. we're doing pretty well. Um, it's, really, it's really very difficult because um, the science of how climate change impacts specific natural values is really in its infancy there's not mm. it's there's not a lot known the problem with with science and ecology is that it's it's not like physics you don't just put in the numbers and the answer comes out there's always uh, exceptions to the rule mm. so actually working out what's going to happen is really really very complex it's all sort of one of my areas of interest is biogeography, uh, which is kind of looking at why a value, be that a plant or a community, occurs where it does. Mm. Um, and there's all sorts of stuff that feed into that sort of like a historical context, uh, time since last disturbance, interspecies interactions are huge, and climate is part of that, but it's not necessarily the main part of that mm. and whenever you fiddle with one of those aspects of what affects that species distribution they all change mm. so it's like you know you move something and it re it, it reshuffles the whole, the whole pack <laughs> yeah so it it gets really complex once you start looking at it at that level mm. um, um and we don't really know for most things, probably nearly all things, exactly what's going to happen. We have a fair idea. We can make sort of ballpark guesses and things like that. Uh, for some things it's more obvious than others, but, um, but knowing exactly what happens when you, when you shuffle something hmm. is, is really hard. Cool. And so then in like thinking about conclusion, in concluding today's conversation, which I've just, again, I found so insightful and there's just so much more I really want to know specifically about the impacts in Tasmania, but it's not the time or place to do it. But what, do you have any like goals or things that you're really focusing on for the last part of the year? Um, 
you know, in the project work that you're doing or, you know, any, yeah, I guess any big ticket items that you're sort of working towards at the moment? Or is it, is the project just stretching on, like, what's the time frame that you're working with? I have really, like, in terms of what I do for work, it's really incredibly variable, really. I do all sorts of stuff. Um, but with this climate change stuff, I have a whole bunch of um, re-monitoring that has to be done this summer, um, looking at a, a whole bunch of um, tree-line sites uh, on mountains throughout the World Heritage Area. I think we've got six or seven mountains we have to go back to. Um, so that'll be interesting to see. They have been um, set up for 10 years, so this will be their first revisit. We'll see if anything's changed that we can see. Mm. Um, but yeah, lots of little things, nothing major. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably a good way to be. So, so how much percentage of time do you spend outside in, you know, in the environment as opposed to in the office oh, behind the computer? These days, uh, probably, <laughs> I probably spend 95% of my time inside. But it's yeah. really variable. Like in summer, I can spend weeks on end in the field, and in winter, I can spend months on end in the office. Yeah. So it, yeah. Well, I hear you because that's, to be honest, that's kind of a similar pattern to my lifestyle. Like people look in and see us running around all over the world with our tours and stuff, but there's a huge amount of time that goes in the office, but the 5% is what makes it worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I get to go to some pretty amazing places too. So yeah. And we good. didn't even begin to talk about Macquarie Island, but I know yeah. there's another place close to your heart. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so much for your time. Well, like, thanks for really having me. I'm really grateful. I really am. It's in, really interesting. And if people want to connect to you, like, is there a way that they can do that? Or um, have you got a, you don't have like a website or anything? No, no. How could people make contact with you? Um, well, they can, they can do it through my work, I suppose. That's, mm -hmm. that's fine. Okay, yep. great. Cool. All right. Now I'll definitely put it Pretty easy to up. find. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Thanks, yeah. Michael. That's amazing. Cheers. All right.